Welcome to 2.23am, a call to uncommon action, where we seek to create spaces and places for individuals to express their wholeness through evolutionary businesses that serve the well-being of all. I'm Christine McDougall. Today my guest is Cindy Wigglesworth, creator of the magnificent body of work around developing spiritual intelligence. Cindy is also president of Deep Change and the author of the best-selling and award-winning book, SQ21, The 21 Skills of Spiritual Intelligence. Some of Cindy's starting questions in developing her body of work include, how have the noblest people, like Nelson Mandela and the Gandhis of the world, got to the place of such humility? It's not that they are perfect. It's not that they have zero ego, which is probably not attainable. What do they have that enables them to live from the places that they do? And another question, is my ego running my life or is my higher self running my life? Cindy defines SQ as the ability to behave with wisdom and compassion while maintaining inner and outer peace regardless of the situation. That's the kind of leader I want to be. That's the kind of leader I want to work with. That's the kind of leader I want running our governments and businesses. If this is the type of leader you want to be, the type of leader who has the ability to create evolutionary organizations such as Frederick Leloux researched in his wonderful book, Reinventing Organizations, and Hugo Spouse is building with River Simple, then you will love this episode. As usual, quotes from this episode, links, etc., Cindy's bio, are all found in the show notes at www.blog.223am.com forward slash podcast. Thanks for listening. Today, I am very excited to welcome Cindy Wigglesworth, a wonderful uh, coach, executive coach, author and researcher in the field of spiritual intelligence. Uh, Cindy has written a beautiful book on this subject, which we will have in the show notes. Really excited to have you here, Cindy. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. It's wonderful to be here. So, uh, the opening question, literally or metaphorically, is what wakes you at 2.23 a.m.? It's a very delightful, clever question, and I'm happy to report that I rarely wake up in the middle of the night. (laughs) But Yes, but since I know the intention of the question is like what weighs on your mind, and if I were to wake up in the middle of the night, what would tend to pop into my mind? Uh, there's probably a personal answer and a global answer. So the the personal answer tends to be around, have I been on track? Am I fulfilling my mission, my commitment for this lifetime? The larger question tends to be around humanity's evolution and will we grow up fast enough to keep up with all the problems we're creating? Okay. That is a wonderful answer because it gives you all sorts of places I can go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to I'm going to because I I'm I, I'm going to head down if you're okay with that I'm going to head down the personal path first, um, mm-hmm. fulfilling your uh, mission and your commitment to that. And I I know that you have uh, you have had a huge commitment to this journey of spiritual intelligence. So perhaps if you can give uh, the audience a little bit of background of that, and then we can sort of look at you know um, how you're moving in that direction of filling that um, mission and commitment. Yeah. So I guess I should explain a little bit about how I came to do this work and. It's hard oftentimes when you look back at your life to try and pick out the threads of the tapestry, you know, like where did I really start this journey? To a degree, it starts as a child when we got transferred from the suburbs of the northeastern United States where we were a very comfortable middle-class family to Bombay, India, which is now Mumbai. And And I was six years old. So we went from the first house I remember, which seriously had a little white picket fence around the backyard, to this skyscraper that we lived in. You know, it wasn't huge, you know, maybe 20 stories, but we were the rich people in town because we were the American expatriates. And the poverty 
that was visible on the streets whenever we would drive anywhere. Leprosy was rampant. Every disease, you know, I can't even count how many vaccinations we had to have to go to India. But the desperate poverty, the smells, the sounds, as a six-year-old, it very much imprinted on me. And the odd thing, the odd from my childhood perspective was I was going through First Holy Communion training as a Roman Catholic in Bombay, in Latin, I had to do it all, you know, the whole thing was done in Latin back then. But I'm hearing all these lessons about how God loves us, and I'm seeing this horrible disparity and suffering in the world. So in some ways, the seeds of it go back to when I was six. And trying to figure out how does this possibly make sense, and what is a human being's role in relieving the suffering of the world? What does it mean to be a good human being? So I would say that's been the core question of my life and guided me over time into looking towards the noblest human beings. Often they're called spiritual exemplars like Jesus or Mother Teresa, Gandhi, the Dalai Lama, but they can also be social change agents who have somehow elevated humanity. People like Martin Mm. Luther King Jr., Nelson Mandela, and looking to them for pointers like... What's the hope? Because growing up also, you know, it was the Cold War. Uh, I was We were assigned to Australia during the Vietnam War. You know, there was so much in my consciousness, unlike many people who didn't have the advantage of travel. I did have the advantage of travel, but it pressed on me the global nature of humanity and our culture clashes and all the ways in which we fail to understand each other. And I kind Mm. of, by the time I was a teenager, thought it would be a miracle if this species survived. (laughs) Wow. So the the personal and the global have actually been married since the beginning, in a sense, that my personal question was, what can I do to help? What does it mean to be a good person in the face of all of this? And as an adult, like, is there an area of expertise that as my work I can bring into the world that might help answer the question, both for me, personally, how can I be a good human being and contribute a tiny brick in the total construction of a solution for humanity? Wow. And so, you know, I I, I could imagine that, uh, I mean, it, it's common for teen angst anyway, <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a sort of a, a time of such immense transition in so many ways. But you, you've got a particular type of teen angst going on here, which is all of these things, this, this, this um, brewing field. So how, how did you, how did you sort of navigate that uh, and stay, stay with your head above water when you were a teenager? Well, you know, I was blessed with parents who had the means of providing a really good education. And while we moved a lot, you know, we had the family unit intact. The education was my retreat. You know, I would retreat into books thinking that somewhere, if I just studied hard enough, I could find enough information, enough wisdom, either through science or philosophy or somewhere that would help me figure all this out. So I really, I I had wonderful schooling experience in Australia, and it was during the period of time in high school when I was really coming academically into some, like, strength. You know, like, I understood that I was smart enough to read and understand a whole lot of stuff, so I was taking advanced science, advanced math, economics. I was taking everything I could get my hands on in high school, and extra credit projects, (laughs) you name it went to the best college I could get into and just believed that somehow in the hallowed halls of the university I would find what I needed to understand the world, which, of course, I didn't. (laughs) (laughs) Have you managed that yet? (laughs) Not yet. (laughs) But, you know, it was a naive assumption. It was a sweet, in hindsight, adorable, young person's assumption that logic and study would somehow provide a solution. And it was actually outstanding training. I don't regret any of it, but, you know, I did not find the answers I was searching for there. And, of course, college comes to an end and you've got to make a living, so you get a job. And I went into corporate America for 20 years, and I learned actually – 
And it's one of these things where you look back on your life and things make sense that going the other direction as a kid growing up didn't make sense. But looking back, it's like the perfect place for me to have landed was in the oil industry doing 20 years of human resources work because in a sense I was studying human beings just from a different perspective. I was also and, and having... Was, Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to say, well, you know, and there's this this amazingly uh, gorgeous juxtaposition as well of being in the oil industry for 20 years. <laughs> yes, and, uh, you know, many people don't like the oil industry, and I have a probably counterintuitive perspective on that in that I actually am a big yeah. fan of the oil industry, but... I realize that when people hear spirituality and oil, they think like that can't possibly go together. <laughs> but but I take a more holistic perspective on human evolution and energy and the role that energy has played in human evolution, which is probably a whole nother one hour phone call. But um, yeah, yeah, I, I'm, <laughs> I, you know, that's a fascinating a fascinating conversation because it, um, it's so interesting. I've got um, some good friends who are in central Queensland, um, farmers, beautiful farmers, and they have a project called Soil to Soul mm-hmm. and, uh, and um, trying to restore and replenish the, uh, the, the farming community in Australia. And they actually have on their farm, they have um, um, fracking, uh, what's known as fracking, CF, CFG, uh, cold steam gas. And they yeah. have a beautiful relationship with the company, and uh, and so so many people find this this huge dissonance between soil to soul and this, and yet you know they've navigated this pathway that is quite outstanding, and uh, and and just by engaging in that conversation, it opens up this whole. If you're open to it, and that's the piece, you know, if you're open to it, it engages a whole other perspective that I think um, is largely ignored. So, yes, that conversation around uh, a big fan of the oil industry, as you quoted. (laughs) Yeah, now I'm not saying all the players in the oil industry are worth being a fan of, but I think, you know, I have learned so much myself personally from working inside a major corporation that runs pretty well. Um, Every major corporation has its forms of bureaucracy and dysfunction. I've never met one, just like I've never met a human family that's perfect. I've never met a corporate family that's perfect. But I've learned a lot from the discipline and rigor of an engineering company that runs well and that really does care about safety and care about excellence and doing things well and so you know fantastic stuff and yeah everything is part of a larger story there is always complexity and and one of the things that i i really am grateful for my expatriate experiences as a child is that i came to see complexity early in my life and have been grappling with it for a long time you know for example the geography of the world and the location of oil resources is not evenly distributed. A lot of it is distributed in parts of the world that when they get huge amounts of oil inflow money, destabilizes things, you know. So there's a whole layer of complexity of, like, what is the future of humanity and what are all the things that are factors in the future of humanity? It's like a huge number of things that interconnect. And so to oversimplify it, just won't serve us but in one sense in one sense i sort of can simplify it the common theme is how grown up are we can we handle the complexity of the systems in which we are embedded yeah i I think that's a really uh wonderful um uh, and that sort of gets to the to the uh the core of of the work that you've really dedicated the last how many years of your life has sort of gone into um um, the spiritual intelligence and, and creating the, the tool and, and all of that sort of thing. It's been almost 15 years full-time, and then the ideas percolated up about five years before that. So 19 to 20 years if you count all of it. Wow. And so so can you can you speak into a little bit about um, that particular journey and and, uh, and and also your your experience I mean fifteen years of actually at the coal face of, of of having this come to life um, you know some of the experiences that you went through um, in that and how you um, how you sustained yourself and so on during that time in in all dimensions you know just not just you know in one single dimension right. 
Well, the idea for this started percolating. I kind of have to back up a little bit. You know, I had this overdeveloped IQ where I really thought IQ was going to solve all problems. And as I often joke, you know, when I went to work in the oil industry, I started getting feedback during my performance appraisals that, you know, we basically it said something like this, the short form. We get it that you're really smart and that you work really hard. However, you are somewhat annoying to be around. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) They were more polite than that, but that's the fast version. Um, And after I got that feedback several times, and, you know, mind you, this is an engineering company telling me this, right? And and so when I'm annoying inside of that context, you realize what annoying must have looked like. So now we would say... (laughs) we would say she lacks interpersonal skills or she needs EQ. But back then, we didn't articulate it quite as well because the whole Daniel Goleman and all those materials had not come out yet. But basically, I needed to develop better interpersonal skills, which I did over time, kind of fumbling my way through it. And what do you know? Hey, it works, you know? Listening to people is a radically helpful idea. (laughs) So I I start... I start developing, you know, a more mature self that is more skillful. And I'm learning by yes. listening and I'm collaborating better and all of that is great. Independent of my career, I started doing, I changed churches. I left uh, the Roman Catholic Church, found another church, started doing a whole lot of personal growth workshops, reading books, listening to tapes, and went through a really strong personal growth period where I was deeply reflecting in particular back again to this question of what makes a virtuous person, am I virtuous, what should I be working on to become more virtuous, what does nobility look like? And working hard using various tools on getting out of my ego and living from a higher place. Surprisingly, that ended up having tremendous relevance at work when I was faced with a crisis at work at the same time I was faced with a crisis in my personal life. And the the who that I was had changed. And as the who that I was had changed, my leadership had changed. And I was far more effective than I had ever been. And yet I was doing none of the usual expert self stuff where I would come in and tell people, here is the solution. It was really deeply being present to the whole complex system of who was mad at whom and who had which opinion and and having no technical expertise, having to facilitate a more constructive outcome, I was blown away by the effectiveness of my being a facilitative leader as opposed to a more traditional leader. And as and I had no official org chart power over any of these people. I was responsible for facilitating something that I had no power to force. So it was yes. really a very good experience. At the end of that, I thought, this is incredibly relevant for leadership, and somewhere this has to be written up. And I went in a search for finding something that I would have called at that time spirituality and leadership or spirituality in the workplace, couldn't find it. And when I was on retreat, I was actually away from home for a week in a beautiful retreat setting, and I was in the prayer chapel of this particular facility when I got that this was my next career. I didn't have the words spiritual intelligence yet, but I knew that it was going to be around spirituality and work. So that was five years before I actually left my job, and I was a single mom, so there was a lot of planning (laughs) that would need to take place before I could yeah. um, leap out there. Do you want me to just keep wow. going? Yeah, I, I, um, I, I'd love to, but I just want to, I want to come back because I think this is a really critical point. Um, you said your expert self, mm. you, the expert self stuff. So could, I, I'd really love you just to speak a little bit more about that. Uh, it, it sort of landed with me and I'm going, oh, I know my expert self, you know, yeah. bossy, you know, thinks, has all the answers. <laughs> Yes, and you know, it's not, that voice doesn't have to be even bitchy. That voice can just be yes. technically awesome. You know, like I yes. have the technical depth, man. I've studied this. So it's not even about, you know, because sometimes that can sound like I'm just being bossy, but there was an aspect of me where I felt obligated to have the technical knowledge and to come in with the technical answer. 
even if it was from a softer technology like human resources, organizational development kinds of stuff. But what if instead I came in with not knowing? And I really didn't have a choice because I didn't know. (laughs) So the universe (laughs) kind of threw me in there. But are you saying you not only came in with not knowing and you didn't know, but you were also willing to declare that you didn't know? Was that, I mean, hold the space yeah. of not knowing? Because there's a difference yeah. between someone not knowing and knowing that they don't know and then bluffing, um, yeah. in, in bluffing their way through. But I'm hearing you're actually, you know, in that real um, crucible of not knowing and having not knowing the uh, uh, the okay space to start from. Yes. I was definitely in the not knowing and not pretending otherwise space. And fortunately, I mean, in in that moment, it didn't feel fortunate. But in the grander scheme, my personal life stuff that was going on had my, I was so heartbroken personally at that moment that I didn't have any need, desire, or energy to try and pretend like I knew anything, to try and be the boss of the universe, to to try and be the center of attention. I just wanted to help hear what was going on and see if collectively there was any solution to be found to this problem. So, so you're actually talking about an intersection. If I if I'm hearing this correctly, you had you had this issue going on in the workplace. Where in in your you didn't you were in the space of not knowing, but at the same time you were in your own heartbrokenness in your own personal life, and so there was yeah. this whole um, cauldron of of experiences in all domains that was a, a, you know I would say in some some levels ego reductive. <laughs> totally, <laughs> maybe I mean, ego, yeah, yeah, e- ego stripped. You know, I mean, you just feel naked and vulnerable. And just profoundly humble. So there is yes. no, um, there's no adequate normal persona to jump in and be the persona that would defend you. Yes. So you, you just show up raw, and that's actually what was needed. I think in that moment was for someone to show up raw and vulnerable and present to all the people who were having upset about the project that was stuck. And to listen to them without any agenda, I had no agenda because I didn't know what any answer yes. should be, and I, it was a part of the business I didn't understand, and I didn't have the energy to be fighting anybody. I just wanted to hear. Yes. And so it was a tremendous gift. You know, it was like my first set of performance feedbacks ended up giving me what I needed to really deeply learn how to understand my own emotions and other people's emotions and listen to people. And this level kind of cracked my ego in such a way that I could be present and humble and vulnerable and raw and bring forward, consequently, surprisingly, and I mean, I've never experienced this before, but rawness and vulnerability and genuine effort from some of the other people who were involved. And so can I ask you, because I, I know that you, you're, you're now fairly experienced in, in, uh, in working with leaders around their own spiritual intelligence and so on. Is, do you believe that going through this kind of uh, crucible, humbling experience is a part of the process, is kind of necessary, or is that, is that sort of like a, a common thing? Because it's, you know, it's hard. It's, I, I know, it's just like it's, it's a really uh, uncomfortable, to put it mildly, generally space. So, is this is that something that you think is a almost like a necessary step, or is it a usual step, or can sometimes people move through that stage and not have to go through that step? It's a powerful <laughs> question, and if I will, if I could shift the container for the question, if we were to put it back yes. in the context of how do human beings grow up. Whether they're executives or not, how have the noblest people attained, you know, the Nelson Mandela's and Gandhi's and Dalai Lama's and whoever you revere as having this amazing capacity, potentially spiritual intelligence, how did they get there? And it's not to say they're perfect people. It's not to say that they had zero ego, because I think that's probably not attainable. 
But something substantial changed, and who is running them? Like the way I visualize this for myself is who's running my life? Is my ego running my life or is my higher self running my life? I don't want to destroy the ego. I don't think it's possible to destroy the ego, but I do think it can grow up. And it grows up as it learns to expand the circle of concern for others. So if all I care about is little me, then I'm a very immature ego. If I can care about me and my family, I'm a tiny bit more mature. If I can care about me and my family and my city, then I'm a lot more mature. If I can broaden that to nation state, if I can broaden it to all of humanity, those are increasing levels of maturity, and then broaden it to all sentient life forms. And maybe all life forms eventually, not caring whether they're sentient or not. Those circles of concern represent each leap outward represents a thinning of the ego or a maturing of the ego so that our higher nature is running the show more and more and eventually these two become in partnership. So my self-identity, which is another way of thinking about my ego, who do I consider Cindy to be? who I consider Cindy to be has become so enmeshed with this desire to show up as higher self and the skill set, if I keep building it and building it, that allows me to show up as higher self, those become less distinct. There are, ego's always present and ego always can fall back into its petty ways, but the distinction between higher self and ego self thins and they become more in partnership. Yes. Yes, and so so um, uh, sort of to circle back to that that the the question this like any and I think that I think the beautiful thing that you, is the way that you rephrase this how to the noblest um, the people that we hold as noblest um, and and virtuous and so you've used that word a, a few times and what I'm hearing you say is that there is this it is a crucible experience it's not. Um, uh, it's it's like anything worth attaining. Um, you know, you've got to get your hands dirty. <laughs> you do, and every time a layer of ego is peeled off, you feel like your skin's being peeled off. But then the odd yes. thing is, the most painful moments I've had of this, and there have been some dark times, and sometimes they'll be two years long, and I think I'm not coming out the other side of it. But once you get to the other side of it and you look back, you realize... I really didn't lose anything that I want back. Like if I could go backwards yeah. and not have had that experience and get back all that self-identification that I had, would I want it? No, don't want no. it back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I and I I would also I would also have a sense that you look back and and there's actually and this I think this is a part of the looking back is that there's a, a level of gratitude for the experience. But when you're in the middle of it, you're going, I don't know whether I can ever be grateful for this. Yes, and, you know, some days you get out of bed, and I remember many days when, as a single mom, I only got up for my daughter. You know, it's like I've got to get through today because of her. I'm going to go out. I'm going to make my money. I'm going to come back. I'm going to pay the bills. We're going to have dinner. We're going to do homework. You know, I I was so in need of supporting her that it got me through the depression and the difficult times. But this is not... Life is not fun. Like, there are moments in life which are just tough. And you can't reframe it until later when you can look back and you can say, oh, okay, that actually now has served me. I got to the other side of it and I've put it to good use. Um, But is is it fun? No. Now, would every one of these exemplary people, the Nelson Mandela's, the Gandhi's, all of them, have had those, times when their ego is being peeled off and it feels like their skin is raw, I I would have to say I'm sure they did. You know, I mean, look at the suffering some of them endured to be polished and burnished into the shining souls they became. Yes. Mm. Wow. So, okay, so let's sort of circle back to you um, you were on the retreat and you realized that this was your work and that it was five years because you needed to um, get some ducks in the row, so to speak, as a single mom and et cetera, et cetera. So when did did you you jump, then at some point you jumped ship? (laughs) I did, I did. And, you know, I... I am not a super metaphysically oriented person. Like, I'm not 
like way out there woo-woo, but I do have a basic core metaphysics that there is something more than goes on to the, than what the eye can see in the world and that yes. these callings come from someplace. And this felt like a calling on my soul and I felt like the universe, God, whatever language you have for that, would partner with me if I would commit to it. And so I committed to it and I said, look, I'm willing to do this. I'm going to study in every available spare moment. I'm going to teach myself a lot of stuff about world religions, about psychology, about philosophy. I'm going to see whatever is out there that might be relevant to this potential field. And I kept thinking I would find someone else who was doing this work that I could then like partner with them. Oh, this person's doing this research that I think should be done. But eventually I realized I was not going to find what I thought needed to be done out there and that it was my choice. Was I going to take this on or not? And my commitment in my meditation prayer focus time was to say, I'll take it on, but I need help. I am not going to do this and put my daughter in any kind of financial hardship. I am going to have a good life for her, and I'm paying for her college. So here are the terms. <laughs> you know, right. Here are the terms of the deal. You've got to help me find the financial way forward with all of this. And, you know, long story short, I had a wonderful job in the oil industry. I was saving plenty of money, and I was deliberately saving money. I was getting lots of promotions thanks to my improved interpersonal skills and uh, yes. with socking away the money. And I ended up getting remarried and having enough money, both of my own and my husband had his. And he said, look, you know, it's clear you really, really want to do this. I will pay the mortgage if you want to quit and pursue this dream. So it was a combination of I had saved up and had enough money in my own accounts to fund this business, which has been a net losing business because the cost of the research, I I paid the cost of all this research myself. But I had enough of a bundle put aside that I thought, okay, now I can take this money, start this company, Mm -hmm. and not harm the family and we still have the kids' colleges taken care of and so on. So um, it it took five years to all manifest, and I had a couple of false starts thinking, you know, oh, I got a great job offer coming from this other organization that I'm going to have a paycheck to get paid to do this work, and it didn't turn out that way. But uh, it turned out later to be the company that was the first company that hired me to do consulting with them. So it all all felt very guided and very blessed. Uh, And it's been hard work, but I wouldn't trade any of it. It's it's all been worth it. Wow. Yeah, wow. And so... So, so, and I just want to, um, um, for I want to sort of see, have you speak a little bit about um, the word spiritual in this piece, um, because I know it comes unfortunately wrapped with a whole bunch of presuppositions, baggage, <laughs> and, yes, uh, a lot of baggage, yeah, baggage, and yeah, and so. So would you would you just speak about that because I know from my experience of you and your work that uh, the the spiritual intelligence tool or well, the tool that you, you've created is is so um, let me say agnostic in some level it's just it's it's so clean in, it, in its in its um, in non dogmatic tone. Well, thank you. Yes, I was really struggling initially for what to call this thing that I was doing. And when I found the Daniel Goleman, Richard Boyatz's work around emotional intelligence is when I started getting it that this whole concept of multiple intelligences was going to be a useful approach. Think of it as an intelligence, which means a set of skills that can be learned. Then you can talk about the skills and stay away from people's beliefs because beliefs are just where we go crazy. It's where we go wrong. So so let me yeah. back up and say I've defined my terms really carefully. The word spirituality I define to mean an innate human need to be connected to something larger than ourselves. An innate human need right. to be connected to something larger than ourselves. That something would be noble or sacred or people might say divine. Now the synonyms that people use We need to be generous around synonyms. This was one of my first ah ahas. But if I was going to create a tool that would be usable with faith-based people, usable with the spiritual but not religious crowd, and usable with atheists and agnostics, we were going to have to get really good at definitions and synonyms. (laughs) Yes. 
Right. You know, I, I kind of joke with people. It's like at the, at the very beginning, I'll define my terms. Like, I'm going to tell you, what do I mean by spirituality? What do I mean by religion? What do I mean by spiritual intelligence? And I'm going to ask you all to take a collective antihistamine because <laughs> the tendency is to be allergic to each other's word choices. <laughs> yes. Wow. Yeah. So I, I'll say we'll, we'll use these generic terms, but then I'm going to give you examples of synonyms that you or your friends might prefer and we're just going to have to find some place of tolerance with each other's synonyms. So yes. let me keep going. Religion. Spirituality is this innate human need to be connected to something larger than ourselves. Religion is the structure that we create as human beings to help support us in our in our spiritual hunger. So a religion yes. is a sacred text, rituals, community of practice, a series of beliefs that bind the people together to help them help each other in their spiritual work. So there's nothing about my work that is opposed to religion, but it is not religion. Yes. So it can be folded into any religious practice for a person who is willing to do that. So what is an intelligence? We've got all these pieces to define. An intelligence is an innate potential that is brought into form through practice. For example, musical ability. So you could have musical ability, but you will not be musically intelligent unless you practice, the, say, the piano and take music theory. Then you will have yes. developed your musical intelligence. We have emotions. We are not necessarily emotionally intelligent. Emotional intelligence is a set of intrapersonal and interpersonal skills that can be developed. Now, what is spiritual intelligence? It is likewise a set of skills, and it is the set of skills that is the something more, more than just IQ, more than EQ, that distinguishes these exemplars that we keep pointing to. What makes Gandhi different from a person who you really like who has outstanding interpersonal skills? Well, there's something more, you know? Yeah. So the something more is the 21 skills that we have described in the research, in the book, and each of those skills has been further described in five levels of skill attainment from the novice level to the expert level. We don't right. require people to do all 21 skills. We can we say, look, you can think some of these are stupid and you don't want to work on them. That's fine. But the most core of the skills that are really not negotiable are being aware of your ego self and higher self and choosing to live with your higher self in charge. If you don't want to do those two, then you're not even interested in spiritual intelligence. I say go back to emotional intelligence. There's plenty to do there. <laughs> right. And, and, and so, uh, okay, so I, I want to speak a bit about the leadership, um, the application to leadership. But before we go there, can you just say a little bit, because I know you made a massive commitment to research on this. Uh, this is not a, um, you know, this is not something that you created over, you know, a cup of coffee and a, um, <laughs> a few <No>. weekends. <laughs> so, would you say a little bit about that, um, that process and, and that investment, not just of your time, energy, money, love, and attention, but you know that that. Yeah. So the process, I'll keep it fairly simple, was how do you even get started? Like in the world of emotional intelligence. They had the advantage that there are a lot of people with good interpersonal skills and there are a lot of graduate students who are wanting to research this. So a lot of this field got started with the faculty member taking a bunch of basically unpaid graduate students, going out in the field, saying, follow these people around, take detailed behavioral notes, let's come back, we'll code the people's behaviors and we'll look for the patterns in the behaviors and then they could have other another metric like, these salespeople perform well, these salespeople don't. Let's take a look and see what's going on here. The star performers, what do you know, all have this thing that we now call good interpersonal skills. So they yeah. had a whole different, what you might call a bottom-up data approach. I had no free graduate students to help me, <laughs> and, and I didn't right. have a thousand Dalai Lamas to do the research with. So <laughs> No! <laughs> So you're dealing with a very um, select human population that would be pointed to as these kind of spiritual exemplars. So 
So how do you do a top-down if you can't do a bottom-up? And a top-down research process, and both of these have flaws, right? But either one, at least you can create a hypothesis and then go out and test it. So I've got got no choice. I've got to do the top-down hypothesis. So what could I do to describe if I looked across these exemplars as, you know, I don't have a perfect knowledge of any of them, but, you know, like if we know what we know about Martin Luther King Jr. and Nelson Mandela and Gandhi and the Dalai Lama and Jesus and Mother Teresa and these different people that come up again and again, my first thing was I sort of checked in and asked around and all the same people would get named when I would say, who do you think of as having this intelligence? Those exemplars would get named. So then could I describe what was different and more, more than EQ, more than IQ, what was different about these people. I then had a focus group where I ran my first past descriptions of the skills past a focus group of people who were also interested in finding a faith-neutral, faith-friendly, atheist-friendly way of having this conversation with executives. So yeah. I figured if you can have this conversation in a corporate setting, you can have it everywhere else. <laughs> that won't be a problem. So that yeah. focus group helped me work through the very first version of the model. I had a, some Ph.D. folks helping me throughout this, and um, one Ph.D. and one master's person at the beginning helping me write the questionnaire that would then be used to validate this idea. So as I would describe the skills, they would help me word the questions with an appropriate Likert scale, and question wording is actually a science in and of itself, and setting up the algorithms to score this, and then we would have the focus group take the first version of quadrant one. There's four quadrants in this thing, and we take quadrant one and give me feedback. We like the way you wrote this. We think this question's confusing, whatever. So that level of detail We then had additional focus groups outside of that one um, give us feedback about the language and the wording we were using, the synonyms we were offering, the glossaries we were offering. We then did a beta test. So that was all in the alpha phase. We then did a beta test of over 500 people, having them take the complete assessment in its form at that time and looking for uh, reliability. You have to have Cronbach's alpha at a certain level, and we did. We were way above the minimum internal reliability on the instrument, and to get feedback from people about the questions, were they clear, and to look for age correlation. Any legitimate Mm. skill set, if it's indeed an intelligence that's built over time, has to have a positive correlation to age or you're not measuring an intelligence. It did have a positive correlation to age, so that was a huge relief. The second phase was to then do a construct validation that was successfully completed. It appeared by having people either write essays or do interviews and take my assessment that we were measuring what we believed we were measuring. That's the construct validation period. And then we went into a cross-correlation with another respected Harvard instrument that was already proven to be relevant for leadership and was based on stages of adult development because I believed that SQ was pointing us somehow into a pathway to higher stages of adult development. We got a very strong positive correlation between my assessment and higher stages of adult development. Correlation is not causation, but if you don't have correlation, you won't have causation. So we were really glad we got a strong correlation. Right. Wow. And that's when I quit paying for research. Wow. Okay. And so, so just because I'm just curious, the positive correlation to age. So you're saying that that, that can you just um, uh, give me some because uh, I'm making an assumption about what you mean by that. If you look at the demographics, are you um, you know what religion do you practice? Like, what is your age? What is your gender? Where do you live? You know, those you, all the basics. One of the demographic yeah. variables was age, and if what there's two sort of crucial terms in psychology, based on my understanding, when you're doing a psychological instrument, you might be assessing a trait, and a trait would yeah. be something inborn and fairly immutable, like left-handedness, right-handedness. Yes. Or are you assessing an intelligence which inherently has skills that are built over time? So you could be born with a potential for a high IQ, but if you've never studied math, the chances of you doing well on an IQ test are not that great. And 
IQ is a little bit of an oddball example because there's some weirdnesses with IQ, but if you think about musical intelligence or emotional intelligence, there tends to be some positive correlation with age. You're not left-handed or right-handed in that regard. Like you're not either born good EQ or born bad EQ. You can learn EQ. If there's right. a positive age correlation, then there is a chance you're dealing with a skill set. Now, that does not mean age guarantees the skills, because we all know people yes. who reach 60, 70, 80 years old, and they're still bad with interpersonal skills. Yes. So it's not a guarantee. But if you didn't have a positive age correlation, you probably aren't looking at skills. So but that, that, the, there, there's obviously a variable in that. So you could have somebody who's very fairly young, um, like, you, like the music, musical prodigy and so on, that's fairly young that has just this ex, sort of off-the-charts intelligence as well. But you're, you're really talking about the, um, the sort of general correlation. The general correlations, yes. yes. And because yes. these yes. skills are actually quite complex and build on so many other skills, I'm not sure that you could have much of a child prodigy across the board on SQ. There are a few skills where you might be able to see that, but not on all yes. 21. Right. Okay. So, so if you can speak now a little bit about the um, the application of this to leadership, and and um, not just the application, but also having had this in the field of practice for. Um, uh, a period of time now. Some, you know, some of the things that have have um, delighted you with um, with this work um, that have become evident. One thing that delights me is it's not such an odd conversation to have anymore. When I started doing this almost 14 and a half years ago, almost 15 years ago, people told me I was crazy to call this spiritual intelligence and that I should fly it under the radar and call it values-based leadership or something else. But other people were doing that, and I felt really strongly in my heart that this was a field that needed to be called what it is and pioneered that yes. way and that, that its time would come eventually. It appears that its time is coming. More and more people are really ready to have this conversation and are receptive to it. And flow into it. So I present it, what I've yes. learned to do is to present it as one of the four intelligences of leadership, which are physical intelligence, IQ, EQ, or emotional intelligence, and spiritual intelligence. Those four yes. are interrelated. Um, they're somewhat independent, but they're somewhat interconnected. And depending on the job a person is in, there is more or less relevance for their job. Now, I never got around to the definition of spiritual intelligence, which I should say is the ability so this is the definition. It is the ability to behave with wisdom and compassion while maintaining inner and outer peace regardless of the situation. Right. Yeah. People are so <laughs> desperate for inner peace in the context of their whole life, not just their home life or their retreat life, yes. but also in their work life. So sometimes people come to me, because that's the hook. That's the piece that they're really intrigued by. It's like, would you talk yes. to me about what does it mean to be calm in the face of craziness? You know, like how can I find that place? Other people who are really more intrigued by wisdom, like I really want to make the right decisions. How can I make the right decisions? What do you mean by wisdom? want to have that conversation. For people who are more the Myers-Briggs feeling style, they might be more attracted to the compassion word. But what's interesting is is that they tend to be related to each other. It's hard to be wise without being compassionate because if you mm. cut out the human factor, you're really not being that wise. It's going to backfire. And yes. compassion without wisdom will also backfire. You can do what you think is kind and you can do harm. So wisdom yes. and compassion have to grow up together. And complexity yes. of inner thought, which is one of the spiritual intelligence skills, is about the ability to hold complex ideas like that and to hold multiple perspectives simultaneously. Holding multiple perspectives simultaneously is crucial if you're going to be able to see your point of view and other multiple other players' points of view. This is really what a Gandhi was so good at. And isn't that a great leadership skill? Yes, yes. Yeah, I, uh, 
I could say I could say a lot about that. You know, we could reflect. We could. We could. I, I'm sure you and I and many other people could reflect on the ability for many of our political leaders to hold complex, multiple complex views. Yes. <laughs> but anyway, we yes, won't and- go there. <laughs> That is one of the things that if I woke up at two in the morning, I would be thinking about. <laughs> yeah, it does. It does sort of circle back to the uh, the uh, the larger humanities evolution, which we haven't really got to, but it's sort of underlying everything that we're speaking about here. I I, I get that sense. Mm-hmm. So. Um, so tell me, because you 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 actually um, completed all of your research and got the instrument up and live. How long ago was that? Now we um, finalized the question and stabilized the instrument in October of 2004. I completed the final correlation analysis in late 2008, and um, so since then I've not been pushing research myself. I have facilitated some other people who have been interested in maybe doing research in the field, but there's not been a whole lot of real good meaty research being done with the instrument yet. I think too many PhD programs aren't quite sure what to do with this. So I have PhD students call me saying, I'm interested in using your tool, but then they go back to the committee and the committee says, what? Right. Yeah. Uh, or, or they realize there's 21 skills and five levels of each of the 21, and it's too many factors and it's too complicated for them, and they decide not to do it. I do think the time is coming when really good, juicy pretest, post-test opportunities are going to arise, and good, strong correlation studies, which were part of what made EQ successful, is people started noticing you could correlate things you cared about, like outstanding medical care with higher EQ? What if we could correlate outstanding medical care with higher SQ? What if we could correlate companies with high empowerment scores in their employees with leaders that have high EQ and high SQ because those two support each other? So I think we will get there. We just need the companies that are ready to jump in and help us run those studies. Mm. And so, so, and, and you, your book came out last year, yes? I'm just the hardback came out in 2012. The paperback just came out, actually, I think October 14th of this year. So okay. the paperback has a lovely forward in it by John Mackey, who is the co-CEO of Whole Foods Market. I don't know if you have Whole Foods in Australia yet, do you? No, we don't. No, we don't. Oh, yes. Hopefully you <laughs> will, because they, they are fabulous. Yes. Yes, I, most Australians that go to the United States know Whole Foods. Well, those ones that are not interested in McDonald's anyway. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the ones that want to eat healthy know about Whole Foods. <laughs> yeah, yes. And and so, um, so can, I mean, other than um, if, a, if, a, if a leader... How would how would someone listening to this who's who's uh, very interested in their own spiritual intelligence how would they engage you know what would what would be a process for them to to um, engage with their own development uh, using this instrument as sort of the uh, the, the central um, tool around which they um, sort of mapped that. I would say in a perfect world, like if I were to say you know if you can please do this. It would be buy the book, take the assessment, and have an SQ21 certified coach work you through the assessment so that you get a 20-page report back, but it is so much better if you can work through the report with a certified coach, and hopefully you'll be joining the ranks soon. Um, So folks, folks who are certified can help you tease apart what does your score mean to you and Sometimes, you know, people are upset about a score and it's because they misunderstood a word, but in the priceless conversation about what did that word mean to you can unfold, oh my gosh, I've been carrying all these assumptions about X or Y, and people have had life-changing conversations about their own assumptions because of going through the report of their 21 skills. They can then make a more intelligent, personal choice about what to focus on. I often felt overwhelmed, especially during my high personal growth 
workshop junkie phase. You know, it's like I've got every book, every workshop, I'm going to all of them. And I, some of them would be so disappointing or really not for me. And I just wish there had been a roadmap that said, you know, okay, Cindy, now it's time for you to focus on clarifying your values. And here mm-hmm. are some tools for you to clarify your values right. instead of me stumbling Lovely. through it. This tool for many people, they have come back and said, this is a phenomenal tool for me to plot my own growth and development and to choose what tools I want to work with. People can bring tools from any faith tradition. They can bring secular tools in. They can say, oh, you know, Byron Katie's work is going to support me on this thing that I want to work on, or Eckhart Tolle's or Deepak Chopra's, or my own Roman Catholic tradition might support me, or my Buddhist tradition might support me. So my hope is that by working through this with a coach, they would be able to use both the nine-step process that's outlined in the book, which is secular, and anything else that they want to use to become the person that they really are here to be, become your noblest Mm. self. Right. Yeah, it is. It's a beautiful instrument. Um, As someone who's worked in executive coaching for many, many years, um, I've, I've never been a big fan of instruments that yours is a particularly special one, uh, you know, um, because it really invites, well, the the definition that you've given here, moving, and I haven't got it written down in word perfect, but with more wisdom and compassion and that inner and outer peace, no matter what the context yeah. <laughs> um, that is going on. <coughs> Excuse me. So, um, so just in, I just want to circle back to the beginning, just sort of in, in our closing, um, I asked you what wakes you at 2.23 a.m. and uh, you're fulfilling um, your own personal mission and um, commitment and humanity's evolution. Do you want to, you want to say a little bit about, about um, uh, both the, where you would go, yes, I'm on path, and, and, uh, and if you're willing to, uh, where, you're, where you're heading, you know, where's, the, where's the, the next phase of this for you? that is emerging, if there is one. Yes, there, there is definitely something next emerging. The, the birth of the book, which anybody who's created a book knows it's a long labor and delivery process, was a huge relief, and it felt like, oh, okay, a huge part of my commitment to life with a capital L has been completed. So getting the research yeah. done was one of those moments. Yes, this thing's valid. I can now write the book. I wrote the book. The book is out there. The book is getting good traction, uh, including in recognizable corporations like Whole Foods Market here in the United States. So that feels wonderful. Then there's what's next for the SQ content. Training coaches has been, I've always been kind of infrastructure oriented. And starting in 2005, I started training coaches and therapists and ministers to use this tool, ministers and other clergy and spiritual directors. So eventually I hope that we have enough people across the globe doing this work that when the tipping point hits, which I don't think is that far away, it's kind of like EQ incubated for a while, and then all of a sudden everybody started talking about emotional intelligence. We may just be a few years away from everybody talking about spiritual intelligence. They then know how to go get the resources they need. So as you know, I'm training coaches in Australia. I've got a couple in Singapore, Japan, Korea, United States, Canada, a few in South America, um, a few in Europe, a few in Africa. There's still a need for more, especially outside the United States. But continuing to grow the infrastructure for the coaching community is a big part of what I think about, you know, like what would make for success. And then just keeping on keeping on with, I, I feel like my responsibility is I keep giving the keynote talks that help people know what this thing is that then drives awareness and eventually it'll land in the right hands and it's going to just pop. It'll have that tipping point moment in social media or the tipping point moment on television or whatever and, and boom, there it is. The next workshop I need to create is a personal growth workshop or series of workshops. I had been hoping it would just emerge from the coaching community, but although individuals have created workshops, it appears that, and I was probably naive to think it wouldn't be this way, a workshop based on the book explicitly is going to be needed. So that'll be my next project. Mm, lovely. Well, Cindy, I, I, uh, as I said, I, I absolutely love this work. Uh, I, 
I completely and totally honor you for the massive commitment of uh, the years that have gone behind this. Uh, it's interesting. Um, I interviewed uh, Hugo Thowers from a wonderful company called River Simple, uh, which will be going live this week. Mm-hmm. And uh, and his whole journey, he's creating um, um, mobility for humanity in a completely different way. So it is an extraordinary mm-hmm. business model that he's created. But his journey as well has been 15 years. Wow. <laughs> and and so, uh, you know, there's something about that 15 years because my journey is 15 years. <laughs> and so far. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> Isn't that yeah. interesting that we all started around 1999-2000? That is interesting. Yes, and so I, um, and I, there is no question that I, um, I know that there have been moments of, of uh, great joy and moments of um, a real 2.23 a.m. moments where it's like, what the hell am I doing? <laughs> what is wrong with you? What were you thinking? <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> so, so uh, you know, it just you ha- it has to be greater than yourself. It just has to be. And I just I really wanted to thank you for for um, staying the course, continuing to stay the course, for offering this work, circling back to humanity's evolution. I think it's a beautiful body of work. Um, I agree with you. I think the time will come and. Uh, and uh, and I'm so glad that when the time comes, the uh, the material is there. So I wanted to thank you, and thank you for joining joining us on uh, the podcast. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for everything that you are doing to help make all of this tipping point arise. I'm indebted to you as well. <laughs> okay. Okay. All the best, Cindy. Thanks. Bye. Thank you. If you want more of 2.23 a.m., then you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to the blog of 2.23am.com. That's blog.223am.com, where you'll find articles and interviews featuring stellar guests from around the world, plus tools and resources, and much, much more. Follow 2.23am on Twitter at twitter.com slash 2 underscore 23am. That's 2 underscore 23am. Or on Facebook at facebook.com slash 0223am. Till next time, thank you for listening.